So by all means, let's be aware of the involvement of our ancestors in the past in slavery, but let's recognize the difference of the past. It really was different. It's not the bringing of present concerns to bear in the past so much as the unreflective bringing of contemporary norms in the past and, and the lack of kind of humility we have, realizing that it took a long time for people like us to develop the views we have. And you can be damn sure that a generation or two, the norms will be different. Um, but we, we have no sense of that. It's as if this is absolute. We, we are it's, it's kind of Hegelian. We've reached, we've reached the point of enlightenment, and now we get to judge the past godlike. And I think, no, we're not gods. We're really not, but we're behaving like them. Sorry, I'm, I'm turning theological. Welcome to the Behind the Scenes at the Museum podcast with me, Tiffany Jenkins. Today, we're going to be talking about the British Empire and us, how and why we're talking about the British Empire in a particular way at the moment. Over the past five to ten years, fractious arguments about the British Empire, about toppling the monuments that mark it, about making reparations for it, about how to teach it in schools, have swept through our public discourse, which is a relatively new thing. Post the Second World War, Britain, the focus on public life is mainly domestic issues, but in the 1990s you did begin to see the apologies for past wrongs, like when in June 1997, Prime Minister Tony Blair issued a statement expressing remorse for inaction by the British government during the Irish famine of the late 1840s. So there was this sort of turn to the past then. Certainly in academic disciplines and the university and cultural institutions, including the museum, which I look at, you've seen a surge of interest in righting the wrongs of history and in the British Empire from the 1990s, and that has burgeoned. But now, I think that's gone from being a sort of niche issue to one that is in the mainstream. There's a daily drip, drip, drip of the wrongs of empire, which I think kicked off around 2015, 2015, at the time of the debate over the toppling of the statue of the 19th century imperialist Cecil Rhodes in Oxford which I think is when one of our guests got involved in this discussion. He is Nigel Bigger. He argued that Cecil Rose should stay, and despite being a committed imperialist, Cecil Rose was not a racist. Nigel is Regis Professor Emeritus of Moral Theology and Director of the MacDonald Centre for Theology, Ethics and Public Life at the University of Oxford, which is where we are recording today. And he is the author of the just-published Colonialism, a Moral Reckoning. It's a book that almost didn't get published. The original publisher, Bloomsbury, got cold feet, but HarperCollins has stepped in and it is now found in all most good bookstores, <laughs> certainly on Amazon. Joining us is the historian, James Hartfield, and I would describe him, I don't know what he thinks of this, as one of my favourite anti-imperialist thinkers. He's nodding, yes. So he's a historian and the author of a number of books on the history of the British Empire. That includes the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, as well as the Bloodstained Poppy, a critique of the politics of commemoration. He has also just published a hugely impressive book, British Empires, a History, 1600 to 2020 with Anthem Press. So it's a very, it's a long durée, really. I brought them together because they obviously have different disciplinary backgrounds. Nigel is an ethicist, James a historian. They have different political histories and perspectives, but at the same time, they are responding, I think, to this particular moment, which is peculiar. Myself, I'm somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about history. Obviously, I wrote a book called Keeping Their Marbles and looked at the turn towards repairing the past by returning artefacts. 
I mean, it does strike me that we're going through an interesting moment where we are excessively preoccupied with the worst of the past, and that strikes me as an unhealthy situation. And I'm also concerned about the moralising of the past. So what I want to do today is talk about your respective books, talk about the British Empire, but also talk about how it is that we're in this situation where we're talking about the British Empire a lot, perhaps from a time when we didn't talk about it very much. So if I could begin with you, Nigel. Why this book now? What was your driver? Not the fraught publication. No. um, But what were you trying to do with it? The origins of the book actually lay in the uh, campaign running up to the independence referendum in Scotland in 2014. I'm Anglo-Scottish. I'm a a unionist. I'm against uh, Scotland's separation. And in reading some accounts by some nationalists as to why why the breakup of the UK, why separating from the UK made sense in their eyes, I noticed for some the argument was Britain equals empire equals evil. And so Scotland's separation is a kind of act of national self-purification from a wicked past um, which had to do with the use of violence to oppress peoples all over the world. And... As it happens, I, I, I had been reading uh, British imperial history for 20 years, and I thought to myself, that equation, Britain equals empire equals evil, is just not true, because the empire, like any long-standing political, any long-standing state, uh, contained lots of goods as well as evils. Now, h- how you make a final judgment is a complicated matter, but the simple equation of empire equals evil just, just wasn't true. So, so the initial motivation was political. I wanted to correct what seemed to me to be a, an unfair caricature of the imperial past. And then the, the as it were, political context then expanded because of Rhodes Must Fall uh, arrived from South Africa here in, in December 2015. And again, uh, um, you know, if, if, if I wanted to put up a poster boy to... To, to British Empire, it wouldn't be Rhodes. I mean, he was a very mixed, morally mixed character, a buccaneer, like like all entrepreneurs, impatient of any constraints, and he cut corners and did some really stupid and, and bad things. Um, but, but the reason I didn't want Rhodes to fall was because I felt as if those lobbying for his toppling didn't know a whole lot about Rhodes and didn't care a lot about the truth about Rhodes' past, but they were projecting onto him a caricature of the British colonial record that was false. So I didn't want him to fall, because if he fell, it would be the triumph of a false story. Those are the, the kind of political motives for writing this this book. But I mean, there's also an historical one. I just thought the truth about the past matters, and the truth is is not being told. Okay. What about you, James? Why your book? It's it spans three sixteen hundred to twenty twenty. It's very ambitious. <laughs> Maybe over ambitious. And, and thanks for asking. I'd written a few books about different aspects of colonial history, which certainly interested me since I first arrived at college in London and I was, it was in the middle of the Falklands War and um, there was a terrible conflict in Northern Ireland. There was a great upsurge in patriotic, somewhat imperialistic, or a recovery of the imperial ideal um, in, under Mrs Thatcher's uh, premiership, um, which I was unsympathetic to. And so that was kind of why I started writing it. But since then, I, I think this is uh, what Nigel's saying, is the argument has rather flipped. 
And um, those of us who were critical of imperialism and empire have rather won the argument. And so I should be pleased. Uh, <laughs> and, but I also, I'm conscious that because, I, you know, I'm teaching and um, there's a bombastic version of winning the argument where once everything about the colonies was great, now it's like everything is evil. And I don't mind that. You know, I, 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 my judgment is harsh on colonialism as a whole project. But the, I think that becomes a, like a non-historical sense where people are situating themselves towards history in a, in a moral way. So that um, lots of people that I teach or, or talk to in teaching, they think that the argument is, do you like this or don't you? Uh, it's like uh, David Hume on said, hmm. we should talk about uh, is, not ought. And I always think, well, tell me what is, don't tell me what ought to be. And uh, by relating to this, long history uh, moralistically it seems to me it flattens and it's bad history so in a sense I wanted to write the book I wouldn't have dared to write a book about the whole empire unless it had become an issue in itself so I thought that the fact that people were talking about the whole thing meant that you could at least try and well, how would you write about the whole thing? Mm. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, I can try and explain how. Yes, you have a periodization that seems to be very important to you. You've got five parts. Is that fair? Yeah, well, I, you know, I should say this. I don't want to embarrass Nigel, but it was his idea. Um, we were on a. Platform. It's not embarrassing if no, it's his idea. It, we were on a, I mean, he might be embarrassed at the result. <laughs> but we um, were on a uh, contrary, I'm flattered. Go on. <laughs> we were on a platform, and I was doing my thing, you know, down with the empire. And he said, "Well, he said in a rather charming way, he said, well, you know, there are many British empires.'" Um, huh. And I thought, "Oh, <laughs> well, I didn't concede straight away because I wasn't." It took you five years. You know, to, <laughs> <laughs> I was in full late than ever. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, well, I mean, you might not like the way I did it, but so I thought, well, this is a good argument. Um, I know it, it wasn't like it was wholly alien to me, but but I thought, well, that's that's a great way to say it because there is so the, there's a particular argument people have about um, slavery. You know, they say, oh, you know, Britain's slavery terrible, and then they go, oh, but yeah, and then they kind of miss out that bit where Britain campaigned against slavery, and it seems to me, well, you need to be able to tell both stories, which means you've got to know that the. The policy changed, and it, it was—I mean, a policy is too trivial. The, the, the fundamental ethos of the British Empire was was reordered at this key point. So, I'm—you asked periodization. Mm. I say that my version is there are um, uh, four important periods, which is the what was sometimes called the old colonial system, which I think you probably associate with the mercantilist economic policy. And that is the era of slavery of the early East India Company and um, uh, the great um, companies like the Hudson's Bay Company, where colonization was a, a, a private enterprise uh, by monopolies granted by kings. And then the that's pretty much overturned in the free trade area. I think that's the meaning of Adam Smith's argument and the policies that stretch right up to the 1850s, maybe 1860s, of um, uh, reorienting Britain uh, as, uh, and it's a great involution, you know, so that lots of investments overseas are, are taken back 
into Britain to build up the Industrial Revolution. And, and then Britain impacts upon the world as this industrial power, no longer just a trading power, but now an industrial power. And then uh, uh, after that, I think there's another massive uh, shift, which is the 1870s, 1880s, uh, where you have the scramble for Africa and there's a great restatement of uh, imperialism as a project. Uh, and uh, and that's a, self-consciously a reversal of the old uh, free market era where lots of those people say, no, we can't do that now. Now we must take responsibility. And it has different aspects to it. And then there's decolonization, which I, th- I take seriously. People often say, oh, it didn't happen, you know, or, the, or somehow it, it, it did, but it didn't happen. I think it is a real thing that you must take seriously. And then as an addendum, really, I'm interested in the th- my life, which is includes that um, peculiar moment of humanitarian intervention, which I think was a kind of post-Cold War setup. But, and I mean, Robin Cook and... Yeah, you know, that whole... Which it ended up with us being in Iraq in a terrible... Mm. Um, well, I mean, depending on your attitude on this, but, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, it, very complicated... And protracted conflict, which, you know, has certainly caused a lot of disquiet in Britain. Nigel. Could, could I just um, comment on what James has said? Um, so, you know, we, we agreed that there were different British empires at different periods. Uh, and I'm not going to quarrel with what James has said, but uh, when you talked about the transition from the mercantilist period of the 17th, 18th centuries to the free trade period from the 1840s onwards, you did it in economic terms, and I, I think that's correct. But I also want to observe what seems to me to be a kind of moral revolution. And you see it, first of all, I guess, with the changing attitudes towards slavery in, from the 1770s onwards. And I, I've just been reading, I, I, in retrospect, m- my book really focuses on the Second British Empire after the American Revolution of the 1780s. And I was kind of sketchy about what happened before, and I've been reading about the behaviour of English colonists on the coast of North America, and it was pretty dreadful, pretty brutal and greedy, not unlike the behaviour of rapacious members of the East India Company in India in the 1600s, 1700s. So I observe around the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s, there was a moral revolution. The, the, the campaign to abolish slavery was a signal part of that, but also later throughout the 19th century, you, you do get colonial officials who are genuinely concerned about the impact of colonial modernity upon native peoples, a genuine concern, and attempts to ameliorate the impact. I guess I, the, the only qualification I had, James, is I think there was a moral change as well as an eco- economic one. You're nodding, James. You oh, say, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I 100% agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, I took the idea, but um, which I know that you've um, criticised because I've just been reading... Colonialism by Nigel Bigger, um, the Eric Williams argument, but I like Williams' argument, yeah. and it put it in my mind. You know, the book is now known mostly because he he makes the case that the slave era made this massive massive contribution to the birth of capitalism in Britain, which you could argue about. But I thought that the the more interesting part is that he then goes on to try and explain why anti-slavery was also fitted and he's 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 he is moderate or, or mediated i mean um you know he doesn't say there was no moral 
revolution. On the contrary, he does he makes this point that you know it is about Wilberforce and all the rest. Of it, but he also makes the point, but it also worked with what was good. I, and I don't mean for this capital, like you mean yeah, so is that for, for people making money for. Um, but th- uh, that's not immoral uh, to make money. Uh, and we, he, we ruin that. <laughs> <laughs> he makes this great point. I think it's um, uh, uh, Palmerston says, so, you know, how lucky we were that what was good was also fruitful, mm. that um, mm. that doing the right thing also turned out to be very successful. Um, and I, I read that in Williams quite well, but, but also particularly like that he demarcated and he tried to show that, that it was a shift. He was using... He borrowed the ideas from Karl Marx. He'd read um, the chapter on primitive accumulation. That's where uh, I think he started with the ideas. What about racism? How integral to the project of imperialism is racism? Because you'd think it was. Well, I think it is a kind of... I mean, maybe not as it's often said. I don't think it's a... um, I think often people had strong motives of um, a race. I mean, to say that their concepts of who they were as a race and their relationship to the world uh, that wasn't them were understood in, in kind of heightened terms about uh, the superiority of British civilization and even the superiority of the white race. At various times, key exponents of the imperial ideal had that in their mind. I don't think that's as important as I, mean, I don't think ideas are as decisive. I think more it's much more the sense in which you, because the the recurrent theme of prejudice uh, says to me that what you have, uh, which is kind of unavoidable in a colony, uh, yeah. in a in a, an empire, is that um, it's unavoidable are, because you're dominating. Yeah, because one group of people are in this uh, more powerful than another. And then it, when you have those unequal relations established over and over, uh, it's natural for people to try and understand why that inequality exists. You know, why, why are we on top or why are they below? Or, you know, why shouldn't I, you know, why am I not listening to him? Why am I listening to her? Um, and it, it, I think it's kind of intuitive and normal that people would understand that as the, they did, that power was distributed along the lines of um, black and white. It was, and consequently, they, they've formalised that in their minds in different ways. And, they, you know, it's much less likely to be, a, what you know, people sometimes call scientific racism. You know, but, um, it was true some, uh, you know, colonial officials would social Darwinists and the like but that was rare I don't or it wasn't rare it wasn't that it wasn't dominant I think it was marginal really more often they would think in terms of uh, culturally and civilizationally mm-hmm. and they would say well look you know we are <laughs> we are superior um and there, there, there wasn't always uh, like oppressively so you know it might be like responsibly so you know, we're it. We've prevalence is places in this position. We have a responsibility to act properly. That could be a good, you know, could be a civilizing, uh, civilizing constraint, but it could often be oppressive and cruel. So, um, James, I might disagree about the effective role of ideas over material factors, but that, that, let's put that aside. On this subject of racism, the first thing I want to say is Europeans didn't invent it. I mean, I, I think it's 
the, the the human propensity to um, think well of their own group and to, to, to big up their own significance um, by disparaging another group, be it religious, be it ethnic, be it social class, is, I think, universal, right? So um, there are plenty of instances of, of, of um, uh, racism among non-white peoples. I, I, in my book, I, I quote the, the Irish novelist Gerald Hanley, who in 1940 was in British uniform in Somaliland during the Second World War, commanding Somali troops, whom he could not persuade to take orders from a Bantu NCO, because according to the Somalis, Bantus are natural slaves. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. So this is a universal vice, I, I think. Now, I guess in my book, I, I want to distinguish different kinds of of vicious attitude. I mean, one can be patronizing without being racist. One can have a sense of one's own cultural superiority without necessarily being patronizing. But I guess if you do belong to a civilization that in many respects is superior scientifically, technologically, commercially, militarily, I'm thinking of Cecil Rhodes pitching up on the coast of South Africa in 1870. Did he feel superior? Yes, he did. Did he have reason to feel superior? In many respects, yes, he did. Now, uh, uh, did that necessarily lead him to be arrogant? Well, not necessarily, but, but people who belong to a superior civilization are prone to the temptation to arrogance. And was he arrogant? Yes, he was. Were many Brits arrogant? Yes, they were. Did that mean necessarily that, that they always were contemptuous of native peoples and their culture? Not always, no. Uh, some Britons were fascinated by Sanskrit learning in India. Uh, and, and David Livingstone uh, um, in the 1870s reflecting on his experience of Africans, in the end concluded they're just the same as Europeans. I mean, they have different sets of virtues and vices, but they have virtues as well as vices. But then the, the whole, the whole uh, anti-slavery movement was premised on basic human equality of all people, regardless of race, notwithstanding different levels of cultural development. But the, the crucial thing was that many people um, um, in the empire regarded uh, native peoples as relatively underdeveloped, but as equally capable of development, which is why you have... Uh, the vote granted to Africans in Cape Colony on the same terms as whites as, as early as 1853. In principle, Africans, to use Rose's terms, can become civilised. And so there's that. Uh, but then toward the end of the 19th century, you get the development of scientific or biological racism, the idea that some peoples are forever destined to be inferior. And that's to some extent a product of, of, of disappointed expectations, an awareness that helping native peoples modernize uh, uh, was a long-term business and it wasn't happening as quickly as they expected. But what about all the violence? I mean, where did that come from? The, I mean, Caroline Elkins would argue that it's essential to, entirely part of imperialism. I loved Caroline Elkins' book, but I also, I mean, I've, I've written a review of it and um, so what I've said there, I'll, I'll let stand, but they... Um, uh, it is great, but she's single-minded and in a way that uh, somebody said, Buck Buckminster Fuller said, I think, if you have a hammer, the world is full of nails. Uh, and when she says, I will examine the empire through the, the lens of violence, there's a sense in which you always get 
violence. Mm. I do think there is a lot of There was a lot of violence. violence. There's a yeah. d- and it can't just be accidental. It's not like, a, you know, a few bad apples. Was there something... Well, you know, funnily, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's not often recognised as a, uh, an empire of historian, uh, uh, historian of empire, but he was. Uh, and um, he wrote rather eloquently, I thought, that one of the best cases against empire was that it, the arbitrariness of British rule, which is, in a sense, you think, well, you know, some other forms of rule were pretty arbitrary, quasi. But there is a point to this, which is that the um, uh, um, empire, uh, I mean, at its frontiers, especially, you know, as an unsettled character, uh, because you're you're talking about the the perimeters, the outlying points of British... um, uh, political control and the, the, the question of um, authority and um, respect um, is tempestuous in many time, uh, points I do think as a modifying point and I think this is important to say is that, that there's a thing about writing history which is that you're drawn to the dramas you know people don't write histories of you know I got up and made the tea and uh, you know the kids went to school <laughs> And, you know, many people had uh, long and uh, happy lives under colonial rule and, um, you know, um, uh, went to school and fell in love and got married and raised children. But if I'd said that to you and you, the student you were, protesting (laughs) at the Falklands, you would have said, don't be silly, Tiffany. Uh, maybe, but I would have been, I think I would have been wrong. Or I, maybe I would have, I hope I might have had the wit to say, well, that's not what's important. Yes. <laughs> um, and so in some ways you want to say that's not what's important. If you live with violence at the perimeter of your life, it's terrifying and it, it's oppressive. Um, um, and there was a lot, uh, at various points, was a lot of violence and disorder because I don't think the, I mean, it's complicated that the degree of, um, uh, what's the word, the of legitimacy that the British Empire had in the eyes of its colonial subjects because it did have a lot of legitimacy at key points, but for many peoples, it suddenly didn't. And th- those are the conflicts. And I think that's what you you have to look at. So, so, so let me just put on record that, that I disagree passionately about Caroline Elkin's book, which I think was dreadful. But <laughs> let's not get in... in, in but it's about, it's about yeah. what, what is a driver, isn't yeah. it? That's what we're effectively but, talking about. Because then you can also think about its legacy today. Is it, are the drivers still in place? But just, just on, on violence, Tiffany and James, I, I mean, we, we, uh, you, the conversation so far it seems to me to be ahistorical. I mean, good God, there was a hell of a lot of violence all over the world in the past, because borders were insecure. I mean, if you read about Anglo-Saxon England, um, um, peoples were constantly at war because they were constantly under threat. And I just think, you know, we, we live in a, in a, in a, um, a post-1945 or post-20th century world where borders largely have been fixed and you have stable, more or less stable states and we have an international order, international law, much of that didn't exist uh, until the 20th century. And um, I guess my view is uh, all states uh, um, survive on the threat of violence and how much violence it is morally permissible to use depends on what's necessary to secure peace. And in the past, uh, peace was, was rare. 
So I, I guess I'm, I'm more forgiving of the use of violence by the British because they certainly weren't the only ones using it and because um, colonial states, like a lot of states, were insecure and, and therefore prone to use, use violence to make themselves more secure. So th there is that. Um, w was the illegitimate violence used by the British? Absolutely, and I, 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 I'm, I think I'm honest in, in, in saying that. I think the, the European wars of the 1840s were illegitimate, um, although I do point out that whatever damage the British and the Europeans did to China in the 19th century was uh, 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 pales by comparison with the damage done by Mao in the 50s and 60s. But uh, putting that aside, uh, Amritsar was the, the General Dyer's um, up to 15 minutes of shooting into an unarmed crowd was, was uh, um, um, unjustifiable. We can go on. Um, and I should also say that some some uh, unjustifiable violence in the colonies was often criticised from London and reined in by London. So after the Indian mutiny, uh, widespread vindictiveness among Anglo-Indians, uh, a lot of um, 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 very passionate discussion in London about that. And in the end, um, government of India is taken out of the East India Company's hands, imperial government is imposed, and Lord Canning arrives and says, I will not govern in anger. I will not govern in anger. And he sets about trying to, to moderate the, the aftermath of that. The final thing I say about violence is, um, yes, the British Empire was often violent, but it was, it was at its most violent between 1939 and 1945. Doing what? Fighting Nazism in, in Europe and, and the Imperial Japanese in Asia. And the Imperial Japanese in Asia were fought mostly by Indian troops or volunteers, not because they wanted the British to rule them forever, but because they wanted to rule themselves through the institutions the British had built, and they did not want to be ruled by the Japanese, is my view. What ended it? You said at the beginning, James, that you thought decolonisation did happen. How do you account for it? Well, I think that's really fascinating because it, there are two definite components. One is that uh, in, deep in the heart of um, uh, Whitehall, let's say, um, there was a massive um, gulp, especially around Singapore. And, um, you know, there, there'd been anxieties before then. Robert Cecil said this thing, which I love, where he said it's like 1900. And he said, um, oh, you know, it's only going to get worse. So the less that happens, the better for us. <laughs> which was <laughs> a very nice Tory kind of a worldview. Well, <laughs> more or more sympathetic to it. The less that happens, the better it will be for us. And uh, there was a, they did feel that, you know, that there was sat on a tinderbox or, you know, that um, it was extraordinary that anybody obeyed them. There was, there was a, that weird sentiment. And um, it's very clear in the, um, sorry, in the uh, discussions in the cabinet during the war about uh, India and about Singapore, and they have a strong sense that uh, their days are numbered. And, you know, some people dug in at that point. You know, I think Churchill did have a sense that you should dig in and fight. Um, but then a lot of others said, like um, uh, Mountbatten, were really, you know, we, we should be ahead of this and try and be, um, you know, honest brokers and uh, let this go forward. And in a sense, that's what Macmillan was doing in 1960. So there is a big component of decolonization, 
which comes from um, self-doubt. Self-preservation. Self-doubt, I think. I mean, self-preservation played a part, but I I think that in some ways it was an exaggerated sense of the, um, that it was over. But there was also, and I I think it's a cumulative thing, and I I want to say it's heroic too. I think that the anti-colonial movement is heroic. I think it's it's human and, uh, and, you know, by all means, tell me of the ter- many terrible flaws that they're all real. Um, but the uh, there's something about the desire to um, govern yourself and the the people that threw up, like Nehru, like Gandhi, who you know it's quite difficult to relate to as an English person. But I think the closer you get to him, the more human he is and the more interesting he is um, and and cautious he is, which is is the most um, fascinating part of his story. But also uh, Connolly and um, uh, Pierce, and they they often strike as kind of terrifyingly um, uh, ideological characters. But there's a courage about um, uh, making your own country, which I think is is um, is compelling and and infectious. And I think that one of the most um, uh, interesting and fascinating and charming things, if you read the the many Indian responses to the Irish um, Easter Rising War of Independence and their um, simple fascination with the and love of the Irish for setting themselves free and you know how infectious that was and what a uh, um, an example it was and how people saw themselves people in very very different circumstances saw themselves through the experience of. Um, people elsewhere in the empire, I think is is um, that's really is probably the story of the twentieth century. Yeah, Nigel. So uh, I think everything James has said is is right. Uh, I mean, the precipitating another precipitating set of causes after nineteen forty five was Britain's exhaustion economically um, and American pressure to decolonize as well as uh, internal pressure uh, in uh, India and, and Africa. And what's America's motive in that, do you think? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, two obvious motives. One is um, uh, America, uh, I mean, traditionally America has thought of itself as being anti-imperialist. Because of its history? Because of, well, because of history from 1770s, 80s. Mm. Of course, uh, uh, um, Many Americans now recognise that America was itself a kind of mm. empire, um, um, and one of the precipitating causes of the American Revolutionary War was the frustration of American colonists at being prevented by British imperial troops from invading Indian lands to to colonise them. So you have all sorts of ironies there, but 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 also um, um, partly because of that, America wanted to to dominate. Uh, and Britain was weak, so that was um, um, one way to dominate as you you push the British out of the way. Um, but c- can I just say that there's also a principled reason for the for decolonization at some point. Uh, so um, um, Brit- the, the British learnt a lesson slowly from the American Revolutionary War. They realised that uh, they um, whatever form 
whatever future the empire had, it couldn't retain tight control over its constituent parts. Uh, so in the 1820s, um, I quote them in my book, uh, the three Scottish governors of Calcutta, Bombay and Madras, every one of them uh, uh, said in writing, um, we're not here forever. We, we can't rule India forever. The, the most we can do is help to establish sufficiently stable and decent government and then leave with grace and hopefully with goodwill. 1820s. Um, from the 1860s onwards, uh, the process whereby Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa became gradually more independent. So by 1930, they were virtually independent states within the Commonwealth of Nations, which phrase was first used, I think, by Jan Smuts, the South African, during the First World War. So the idea of the evolution of the empire, at least the white dominions, into a kind of more loose alliance of politically and culturally similar independent nations was already developing. And after the First World War, India was committed to the same route to be, to be a dominion. Um, now, the African uh, colonies weren't put on that same route, partly because in terms of civilizational development, um, they weren't as sophisticated as India, and partly because whereas the Britain, British had been in India for uh, 200 years, the British were only in, Afri in Western East Africa for one generation from 1890 to about 1960. Um, but um, Marjorie Perham, who was, who was a, an expert on the African colonies uh, in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, uh, when she wrote her book, um, Colonial Reckoning in 1960, uh, they were made out of, of the Reith lectures. I mean, she observed that, although she had reservations, like many others, at the rapidity of decolonization, they, they, she, she recognised that once African nationalists had, had gained the support of enough native peoples in, in Africa, uh, they, they should not be resisted. They, they, had, they had to be let, even if they were taking control too quickly, in, in, in the view of Perham and others, uh, there was no way of stopping. The best thing to do was to, to help them uh, get off to a decent start. Uh, my own view of the history of post-colonial Africa is that, on the whole, it's been quite unhappy. Uh, and, and a number of people are saying, um, ideally, decolonization would have been more gradual. But under the circumstances, that wasn't possible. And what do you think about that? What do I think about yeah. that? <coughs> I mean, I, I think uh, it's probably true. It would have been better if, if they'd been, uh, if the British had admitted educated Africans to the upper echelons of of African government earlier, and if 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 those Africans had been more patient in in um, um, in the handover of of, of power. Um, but under the circumstances, <coughs> those conditions didn't didn't um, didn't prevail. I mean, I, I was in South Africa for the first time ever in my life last December, and I spoke to the um, the journalist academic R. W. Johnson, who went back to South Africa in the 1990s to support liberal politics in South, Southern Africa, and he said to me, and he also wrote in his latest book uh, that he had to admit, as a liberal, with 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 regret that all the predictions made by the right-wing Africaners in the 1990s as, as to what would happen in, in South Africa 
with black majority rule had come true. Now, what the solution to that is, I, I don't know. Um, what do you think, James? Well, I, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar with the um, uh, the reaction that you often get. I'm going to both people in literature, you see it, and um, lots of people I know will say, um, Indians and Nigerians will say, oh, you know, um, uh, when you think about what happened in between, I, the colonies look more attractive than um, uh, than we thought. And I think that's a reasonable reaction to certain circumstances. But I've met Russians who say, when you think about what happened since, you know, mm. communism was better. But I know they don't mean it. I mean to say, you know, they, it, you could do it. You know, yeah. by all means, is it re-establish re your Soviet Union? But um, uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's better to be in a poor situation and free than... Uh, honestly, sometimes it's not freedom. Um, I, um, I've got a friend who's from Mozambique and I was chatting, you know, inanely as you do. And, uh, you know, wasn't it terrible about uh, Mobutu? And he's saying, oh, no, <laughs> thank God for Mobutu because mm -hmm. um, it was terrifying. Uh, and he brought order. And I've seen that reaction often in people. And people often, you know, it's in, when you're making a judgment about your life, you don't think it necessary in terms of world history. Or when you do, you think world history is a, is a kind of projection of where you are. So um, dissatisfaction with um, post-colonial rule um, is real and, um, you know, leads people to different judgments. And that is all good. And it's for them to make... But also, I think that, you know, all told, is actually pretty impressive. You know, um, South Africa's situation right now is kind of scary because the, you know, the, the uh, where the economy is and this is a dangerous place and that um, can lead to a lot of um, disorder and crime that can become quite alarming. Um, the government since Mandela hasn't been very um, coherent or quite corrupt, really. But... Um, also, I don't think it's a disaster, you know. Um, and also, I, 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 I want to make this point in a like not too extreme of way, but I do think that the the, the manner of leaving, not not the, the leaving, but the where the economies were, where the polities were, wasn't a great position to be in. You know, they were. Um, it's in uh, your book, Nigel. You talk about the difference between the uh, modernist and the um, anti-modernist critique, and I'm, I think I'm with the modernist critique. One of the great disasters for the colonies, uh, especially in that later period, was that I think in many ways um, being in the empire was a break on their colonial development, and um, you know I think you know for example the the you know the the preponderance of um, uh, uh, subsistence farming in the economy did leave them very weak and divided. You know, so you see this constantly in Africa, where there's a massive gap between the um, the rural poor uh, and uh, um, a, a much smaller urban middle class. And all Southern African polities have had to struggle with that. Um, and, you know, whether there was a better alternative, I'm not sure, but um, um, that was the condition that those were the countries they were inherited. Uh, and uh, whilst I don't pay too much heed to the complaints of, you know, Britain ripped us off, you know, left us here as an excuse or alibi for 
bad governance in the present. I think there, you know, in some ways they were left with um, uh, threadbare economies that had been wrung dry uh, in the way that John Strachey did in the late forties. Um, uh, you know, in Malaya uh, and in um, uh, Ghana. Um. Well, let's talk about legacy. Um, I mean, it's interesting talking about the limits of the period of post-colonialism. Um, that seems to happen at the same time as there's a reckoning within our own society, which paints it as... So you've got this sort of almost nostalgia in one part of the world and then a, perhaps a profound problematizing of empire happening at the same time. I don't know if that's... Um, an, I don't know if there's something so, related... So, 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 where's the nostalgia? Well, if we're talking you mean about... the nostalgia of um, uh, former colonial yeah, subjects? Yeah, so that seems to be happening. Yeah. We, as as we've just discussed, but here in the West, yeah. we're looking also looking towards the past as the explanation for the problems of the present. Yeah. So there's a kind of equivalence there in terms of the past as being blamed. Yes. And I just wonder what is it? So James Baker, you began by saying, you know, when you were a student, empire was bad, and that's one of the reasons why you got into. Uh, but you weren't a, you weren't in the majority in terms of society. I but didn't think so. Perhaps. Maybe Nigel sees it differently. Yeah. Um, yes, of course. There was a there was a strong anti colonial not anti colonial, but uh, um, um, in the nineteen sixties and seventies, there was a lot of um, uh, modern minded people were more uh, dismissive of the colonial era mm. because that was the time they were coming out of. But I, like I say, I, I'm, yeah. I remember. But it, it also as, wasn't a main. It wasn't on the news every day. No, I mean, I think mostly people didn't talk about it. You know, that partly that was, we're, we're, you know, I'm back in Britain where, you know, where patriotism was much more Britain. Um, like the point of that, uh, I've got his, his name now, the, the guy that wrote the book recently about uh, the British economy, um, uh, Edging, Edgerton. Um, uh, anyway, so sort of in that mess, um, first off, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, that some post-colonial subjects view the empire with sure. um, yeah. rosy nostalgia. Great many don't. Yeah, no, I was I was <laughs> trying to segue. It was just striking me that there was one discussion going over But this there. is a different thing, this is this, different which thing. is yeah. fascinating, <clears throat> I think, and it's probably what we're both interested in, in a way, especially reading your last chapters. Um, there is a kind of weird uh, self-excoriating um, uh, culture in Britain today uh, uh, which is uh, uh, against all um, old forms of authority uh, and, um, you know, uh, sl- slightly self-lacerating and uh, masochistic. So, so all, anti- all the anti-institutional stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that like a postmodernism was was the philosophy of that. You know, the kind of uh, or, uh, every grand narrative is is questionable. Yeah. Stuart Hall once said, "You have to destabilize the stabilities." So it's like this constant rug pulling in terms of in- cultural institutions. I, I think any younger generation will always do that to the preceding, yeah. um, and that's accepted and you know reasonable, and you know might lead to stupid um, conclusions. But I do think this is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Where I, I think we're at the end of something. Uh, and there's a massive uh, reconsideration, not just of empire. I think empire swept up in this. Uh, you know, if I went, if I said, uh, you know, traditional forms of family life 
are held in question or um, uh, the, the authority of the police or, you know, I think there is a, a, a sense in which we're, um, the, the, the community at large is a lot more, or, or perhaps the clever people in the community at large are a lot more um, uh, caustic about the received authorities and positions of the past. And I think the way we talk about empire is very much a kind of sounding board of that thing. So there is a, a kind of a dwelling upon. Um, I mean, I've talked about some of these horrible chapters, but I, I thought, well, nobody's really that interested. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you teach history, it's kind of exciting that everybody wants to talk about history. And this is, these are your students? Yeah, and they, they never stop. And um, But they, they're not really interested in history. They're just, they're like, the, the end point of each point is, and, you know, and... I mean, you know, sometimes there are American students that go on about how awful America is. So is it a new morality? No, I think it's a kind of... Um, the, I don't think there's any coherence. Uh, or I mean, you know, people try and write things that make it coherent, but it's much more um, um, a, loss of, a loss of faith or a, a loss of certainty in, uh, you know, where we are in the world. And it, it, it's, it's kind of examined through this critical lens upon the past, which, like I say, I love. You I mean, like I the critical it. lens on the yeah, past because you're interested in the past. Yeah, because this is a great thing. You know, and they, every, you know the, all the books, that even, yeah, I know you hate Caroline Elkins, you said. <laughs> but the, no, I'm sure you don't hate her as a person. But the, uh, the book, I mean, but there is a lot of, um, you know, she's been in the library yeah, she's done archives. And so your, the point that, you're making is that there is good history yeah, being done. Yeah, you find out stuff, even if yeah. the motive of the yeah. writer is wrong. Yeah, I guess, just first of all, I mean, your, your diagnosis of the roots of the current approach to our colonial history is, is broader than mine, James, and I wonder what you think about mine. I'm, I, I'm fixated on the issue of racism, because it seems to me the logic has been... And this, this is really, I mean, the Roads Must Fall came to us from South Africa in 2015. That was fairly marginal. It's really since since the killing of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter in 2020, December 2020, was it? That's, since then it's taken off. And I, it seems to me that they, they, the, the logic for a lot of the critique of colonialism is, it, it comes, I, I think, from, from uh, anti-racist uh, uh, lobby groups. So the logic is Britain is systemically racist, that our systemic racism is a, a product of a colonial mentality, and colonialism is identifiable with slavery and the awful racism that justifies slavery. Therefore, we have to pull down roads, we have to uh, uh, jettison our colonial past in order to free ourselves from systemic racism. That seems to me to be the logic of a lot of uh, the the attention to, well, <laughs> the inattention to to uh, colonial history, and, and they, it, it, that explains why the obsession with slavery and why it is uh, we are being encouraged to forget, if we ever knew, about the 150 years of anti-slavery endeavour of 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 the empire. Um, it, it, it's because colonial history is useful for a present political purpose on the part of those who, who rightly, well, part of those who are 
not simply anti-racist, because I think I hope we're all anti-racist, but but who diagnose our current situation as one of systemic racism, uh, which which I, I I doubt myself. I mean, I don't doubt that there is institutional racism in in parts of Britain. I don't think as a as a society we are systemically racist. So I have a much more focused uh, uh, understanding of what's going on than you, James. I just wonder what you think about that. Well, I mean, I don't disagree. I mean, I think the it's it's it is intriguing the institutional racism. I think if you were like to like a Martian and you were to look at our, our statute books, you'd say it was this was an institutionally anti-racist society. I mean, to say that we have legislation dedicated to stopping us being racist. Now, maybe a less Martian person would say, well, that there must be a reason <laughs> why we've got those things, you know, that we drift that way. I do think that um, it is peculiar that the, um, not that peculiar if you think about it, that um, the way that, um, like if you're young and the way you judge how things are when you, you, you struggle, you look for um, um, pointers, um and you, you you watch films on the TV and um, um, you know Hollywood films about racism in America and films about slavery. You get a kind of a sense of you know you derive your you know what's wicked and what's good from those, um, and you know you you you'll naturally say well you know racism is a very wicked thing. People that must have that that's a terrible wicked thing which is good. But that's kind of we're making that judgment because we we that's what we think. <laughs> it's because we're not racist yeah. that yeah. we yeah. we yeah. see a lot more racism. And you know maybe I mean I do feel that this was a bit like my younger life was that um, if you were I mean I'm I'm not so I wouldn't know. But I mean if you were black, I suspect you would have uh, suffered a lot of um, um, dull uh, and thoughtless um, slights and uh, difficult situations um, and no doubt still do but um, I think you know unaddressed as it would have been you know when I was a boy in the 1960s um, um, and addressed now so it is you, you can see how if you were you know young person in a, a seminar room you'd be but you would say yes this is a racist society because in a way we keep telling them that it, it is. is yeah well, I think and I think students wouldn't have they wouldn't have been um, encouraged in the same way that institutions do. So now you've got decolonizing the curriculum, but universities falling over themselves. I mean, there's something in, there is a sort of institutional power in the way in which they're uh, administering sort of. Yeah, yes, institutions policies. are buying into the decolonizing story, and, and therefore, and students it, inhabit yeah. those institutions, and so it's, yeah. it, it seems... So, and I think often yeah. the students are blay. It's, people often say, well, it's the students as he's young, but actually they're marinated in it. Yes. Well, you take the cue, don't you? And yeah. we do it all the time as teachers, because it's like, how do you get the attention of the students? You yeah, know, And you, you don't say, oh, you know, some boring story about, you know, Watts engine and its separate condenser because they'll die of boredom. Mm. You say, you know, how cruel the masters were, how the the um, um, the workers suffered. Uh, and in the same way, I think if you are telling the story of of uh, Britain in the world, the the simple way to get a hearing from your students 
is to replay that drama for them because mm. you know the that's how you can relate to their that's sense. if that's that's what's motivating it i mean I, I see it more as a sort of legitimacy thing um you know from behalf of institutions and disciplines oh no i'm sure yeah. that i'm just saying like how how us oh. teachers but the, the thing is is that i think so there's on history there's a sort of debate within the historical profession about presentism this is a top-down thing which is that you should you it's not a must but you should now be reading the whole of history through present day concerns whereas i think prior to you know 10 20 years ago you tried not to do that often you inevitably did because new i you know we're all human and also contemporary questions throw up contemporary yeah. questions of the past but it is this top-down thing and so it's not just I, I mean there's nothing wrong it seems to me with um, addressing history in terms of issues that concern us I guess to some extent we've always done that and you know uh, um, um, Oxford classics in the 1890s was driven partly by the uh, contemporary concern to educate imperial administrators so uh, but it, it, it's the it's the um, it, it's the moralism. It, it's the failure to to recognise the past as different and conditions of the past as different, so that even though racism might appall us, what 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 we ought to think about is why. Excuse me. Even though slavery might appall us, um, and we might be appalled at at British people being involved in slavery in the seventeen hundreds. What you provoke us to thought is, is why was it that so many people all over the world, since ancient times to the modern period, found slavery a fact of life? That's, that's what's interesting. Uh, and what's extraordinary is that in the 1770s, thereafter, Northwest Europeans began to repudiate it. That's extraordinary. Um, so by all means, let's, you know, let, let's, think of, let, let's be aware of our, the involvement of our ancestors in the past in slavery, but let's recognise the difference of the past. It really was different, and it's it's the it, it, I, it's not the, the the bringing of present concerns to bear in the past so much as the the um, unreflective bringing of contemporary norms on the past and, and the lack of kind of humility we have. Realising it, it took a long time for people like us to develop the views we have, and you can be damn sure that a generation or two the norms will be different. Um, but we we have no sense of that. It's as if this is. Absolute. We we are it's, it's kind of Hegelian. We've reached, we've reached the point of enlightenment, and now we get to judge the past godlike. And I think no, we're not gods. We're really not, but we're behaving like them. Sorry, I'm, I'm turning theological. No, <laughs> I, I, know, I, 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 I know, quite like it. Yeah. 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 So what's wrong with it? Well, okay. I mean, that was it. It occurred to me as you were talking that you know maybe uh, um, precocious decolonizing students they are the the future of morality that um, <laughs> and and there will be ch- and I'm sure people will be chuckling at this and saying yes yes you've you have just been marooned um, of both of us I'm sure you know in in some uh, unthought thoughtless kind of way um, but I'm, I hope that that's not where we're going but um, because I think there's there is a kind of dull stupidity to the um, um, contemporary um, understanding of, of colonial history. That's well put. See, is it? 
Is it about colonialism? So I always think it's about the present. I mean, I know no, it's no, always I mean, about I, the I, present, but I, I think we're that, finding yeah. the present in the past as a way of not engaging with the future. Well, I certainly felt that about... Uh, I, f- I first began to intuit that with go to Rhodes, uh, um, that the, the, the protesters weren't interested in the, in the historical facts about Rhodes. It was Rhodes as a political instrument. So the, the past is being used for the present. Mm. Uh, uh, and so that, that, that explains the selectivity. Bits that are useful are selected. Slavery is useful... Anti-slavery is not useful, so it's ignored. So I, I do think it's a lot of it. A lot of it is politically driven. Yeah, I mean, I, I, why they, this politics? But I mean, I, I, it certainly is 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 compelling and fascinating. I don't think it's entirely sustainable. That I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic that um, I mean the how the the kind of bandwagon of um, uh, strong beliefs trundles along, and you know, then it gets goes off into some other thing. I mean, I'm always reminded. You know, everybody wanted to talk to me about um, Bosnia and the Balkans. Um, uh, in, uh, you know, 25 years ago, ad nauseum. I mean, not wishing to be rude about the Balkans, but the um, and that now nobody ever yes. talks to me about this. Mm. So um, there are fashions in concern. And this sounds like snarky and, and and superior, but you know, I don't know that this will go on as it's going on. Um, but also, I think we should use what's good. You know, I think that people are interested in history is always useful, and that's an opportunity to to talk about it. And you've done it in a particular way, which um, I'm not sure I would have done, but I think it's very. I mean, really enjoying the book, and um, I'm, I'm I'm very grateful for it. Um, but um, I, th- I think this is why all... are you grateful for it? Well, because the the um, uh, it's some things are hard to say, you know, um, uh, and that um, you know to to swim against the stream um, makes it possible to say things um, that uh, you couldn't have said before. Right. I'm not. I mean, I'm not entirely in agreement with it. And where do you disagree? Oh, uh, I know. Okay, so look, no, okay. No, no, I mean, I think in a way, fundamental. If, if your main I, look, I could pick out, and you know, I, maybe I think that more people died in South African mines, or um, mm-hmm. you know, as I read it, or or things like that. But I don't think that's as important. I just, I, I mean, I wouldn't have been tempted to do quite this because I feel, in a sense, that um, in the way that you've been saying that the, the if you. I don't expect people in the past to be moral guides in the present. I mean, I'm glad that we're wiser than them uh, because that would be terrible to be, you know, have slaves and things like that, you know, would be degrading and and appalling. Um, um, So I, I don't, I think there's something about fighting every argument feels a bit like you're, you've been dragged into the, um, what is the opposite, which is the um, everything about the empire is morally corrupt. Mm. And so my, th- I mean, I have a weird, uh, I, I, my, my headline, I think would be that you, you the, the past is not a moral question. I mean, in the sense, yeah. I mean, the maybe so it's this not is a moral defense. trivial. Yeah, a, I mean, I know yeah. that this is your business, but the, <laughs> yes. um, you know, what's happened has happened. It can't be fixed. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I did a bad thing, I could say, I'm sorry I did that or try and make yeah. recompense. You've got no responsibility for what happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, my parents 
didn't own slaves, I'm glad to say, or their great-great-grandparents. But even if they had, I wouldn't feel responsible for it. Um, um, I might think that it's, it's, I think it's incumbent on Britons to tell as true a story as they can about their past, which it would recognise that some terrible things happened as well as some good things. Uh, Because I think there is a moral responsibility to the truth. Yeah. I think you're doing a moral yeah. thing when you work and try and enlarge our understanding. So it's, but it's not moralising, it's just you're... Yeah, I mean, I just think, well... You've got to be truthful. Every, every time I hear it, I'm kind of... Half of me is like laughing, thinking, um, you know, it's it's over, Alan, Esther, I'm thinking of. You know, you can't fix it, or, or um, mm. Kim Wagner. It's like, well, you never... You can't apologise for Amrits are enough. Yeah, um, it's degrading. I mean, I right. think the idea that you might apologise is just—I I think it's phony <coughs> and weird. Yeah, I no, mean, that's a bit judgmental. Uh, you mentioned Tony Blair's apology in in the nineteen nineties, and I I thought about that, and I thought, you know, as, as a as a political act, it was it was helpful. It helped Irish people feel um, as if the, uh, their view, at least, of what happened in the Irish famine had been heard. But it, didn't, but it didn't make any sense at all for Tony Blair personally to apologise because he wasn't responsible. And actually, a debate is to be had as to to what extent the British government actually was culpable. Um, so I I I, I I I I certainly agree that um, with regard to, to to the past, one one has to be uh, one one has to, to try and lift up all the relevant facts objectively. I myself think that often historians, in terms of, in terms of how they make sense of the past, moral views will creep in, uh, and uh, my my uh, my desire for them is simply that they'll be a little more upfront about it. Um, so but you we, went further. You d- you have done a defence because I, I'm an ethicist, so I felt I felt I, I wanted to try and look at this whole thing and come to to um, a sophisticated judgment about it. Um, um, but but the, the, the judgment wasn't simply it was good or bad. It was it was more complicated than that. Um, um, so I, I, I but, but but even even if a reader of my book like James doesn't entirely agree with with the overall argument, I hope at least by laying out the variety of things it was and, and James' book probably does the same thing. Uh, um, uh, readers will be equipped to contradict the caricatures that, that are prevailing uh, among us. Uh, but, but as for the past, I agree. But there's nothing we can do about the poor people who were enslaved and died died in chains. Um, all we could do is stop it, and we did two centuries ago. And now, given that Britain is a relatively prosperous country, we could, we could use some of our resources to help the descendants of those people. We can't undo the past. So reparations? On the whole, not. And not unless there's something strictly like uh, I mean, we, we, you know, uh, I take it that it was right for the German government to compensate Jews for the loss of their property during the Nazi period because it was clear, you know, who was robbed, what was taken, and who was responsible. But when when you go back two centuries, uh, you you can't undo it that way. So on the whole, not reparations, um, uh, but, but by all means, if 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 West Indians are. Uh, if it seems as if um, they're still suffering the effects of slavery, although, according to certain data, uh, people in Barbados are doing rather better than people in Nigeria. Um, um, 
but but if there if there is a connection, then then let's divert some of our international aid to Barbados rather than to China. Is my view. Sure. I mean, I think I think um, the, the way I often think about it is that there will be legacies, um, but I think trying to look for the past as the sole or the main contributor yes. is is a fool's errand. It ends up being divisive and back backward looking. And too much has happened in between. Yeah, and yeah. I end. Uh, there's this old. I always use this in the discussion about museums and repatriation and reparations, which is a, the rep- idea of reparations is very very influential in the argument for repatriation. And I always use this um, expression to try and sum up what's happened, um, which James has been talking about. Really, how, what, how, what's changed and what are we in, which is different to other sort of historical reckonings. And there's this old expression uh, by a left-wing organiser called Joe Hill, which was "Don't mourn, organise." Just that huh. you know, life things are bad, but we need to organise and do something about it. Yeah. And um, it's now almost flipped over to me: must organise to mourn. And I think that's one of the problems: is that everything that we talk about in the present is now directed at the past, as which is incredibly fatalistic. Um, and also, there's no agency there. Really, and I think it's a you need agency to do stuff in the present. Yes, because uh, yeah, we, we we can't undo the past. So, so if we're going to be held eternally guilty, we're we're kind of paralysed. I think reparations is fascinating, but if you in ordinary life, if you say, "Well, I'm going to repair the damage I did," I'm, I'm going to compensate the person for smashing into their car or something like that. You're restoring the natural balance of things. I think that's the meaning of it, is that, um, you know, where there's a breach of order, you're going to restore it. And I, I think people um, the, who invest a lot of hope in reparations like Hillary Beckles or um, uh, various campaigners have uh, raised this issue. I think they're naive in a way because, the, you know, reparations doesn't mean we're going to overthrow the existing order. It means the opposite. It means we're going to keep, you know, we'll amend the bad thing that happens so that everything can return to normal. So, you know, the, uh, uh, people are, are understandably angered that the British uh, government paid some £20 million pounds, uh, uh, to the slave owners to compensate them for the loss of their property in the people who were freed. But that was the condition of freeing those people. You know, when they spent that £20 million, which was about a fifth of GDP at the time, um, uh, you know, they they meant that they were... They didn't mean... They didn't say we're going to overthrow private property as a social system. We'll become communists who are going to expropriate um, all... Um, private property. They meant, well, well, we'll keep the private property system because that's who we are. Um, but we'll do it without slavery. That means we need to compensate those people that lost by virtue of that fact. And thereby we will achieve the freedom of the slaves. So it wasn't a wicked act. I want to say it wasn't. Yeah. And if you, I, I want to say like to Ken Malik, I know he's written about this, uh, that if you were in the House of Commons when this resolution was being discussed, I think you would have voted for the you compensation. For yeah. Yeah, you for might him. have tried to move a, an amendment to say without compensation, but when that fell, I think you'd be obliged to vote for the act, mm. wouldn't you? It, it, mm. it, it was a political compromise, but it was made for good reasons. Yeah. But you can't go back and... 
Well, you make could. I mean, that. I mean, you know, but what, what would, would you? Where would you? Well, what yeah. would you be expropriating? There aren't wealthy um, uh, estates in the West Indies to expropriate. Mm. That money, you, it's gone, and it was already disappeared. You know, most of the money never got to the West Indies because they they were so heavily indebted that it was all discounted against debts that that other people held against the estates. Um, Palmerston. Uh, got up in Parliament and he said, we owe a debt of reparations to Africa. That was his actual words about, mm. I think, 1846. And what he meant was, and we will meet that debt of reparation. You know, I'm always amazed that the people that campaign for reparations don't find the actual quote where he concedes <laughs> the, yeah. uh, the point. Uh, and he says, and we will meet that debt by financing the um, uh, West Africa Squadron. squadron. Which now you could say, Hillary Beckles might say, but that wasn't the reparations I wanted. <laughs> right? You might reasonably say, well, all that you did was colonize bits of Africa and, uh, you know, push us around with your boats. Uh, but uh, which would be a harsh judgment, but I can understand it. Um, but that doesn't count because um, the, the person who decides what the reparations are is the authority at the time. So it's always a restoration mm. of um, the proper order. You know, when Germany paid reparations at the end of the war, not just to Israel, but to a great many countries, it was a foreign policy. To re- They understood where they were in the world and that they had to restore their authority, uh, which they could only do by apologising. You know, by apologising and compensating, and um, uh, what they were doing, we were trying to say, well, look, given this grievous sin that we've committed, not just against the Jews but against a great many nations, the only way we can get back is is to recognise and to compensate. And what they were doing was they were restoring West Germany's then authority and position in the world, and. Um, you know, and that mm. meant, for example, that the money went to Israel, which then, you know, you could say went to pay for some oppressive policies sure. on the West Bank, yeah. if that was what you were inclined to say. But it, it so reparations, it doesn't mean a, you know, a, like so it's a, conservative. Yeah, it, it's not an yeah. overthrow of the existing order. It's it's a saving of the existing order. So like we, final remarks, which is um, what next? What do you think should happen next? What would you like to see? <laughs> what I would like to see... Yeah. Um, well, I would like to see a, a correction in the current decolonising mode. Um, seems to me that, that uh, leaders of our institutions have bought into the decolonising story with its assumption that we are systemically racist with no critical filter. And... Uh, that's simply it's it, it, intellectually irresponsible, um, but it's it's impacting institutions, and I think I mean my worry is that it actually will exacerbate racial resentment. Uh, so I, I want to see a, a, um, a correction. I want to see people scrutinising the assumptions of the decolonising policy policies, and I, I wrote my book in the hope that that might contribute to that. James. Well, I think I'm optimistic. Um, I want to say that um, um, I love um, all the decolonizers and their um, rambustious 
rack through history. Who is a troublemaker? <laughs> no, but I mean, I do because such a nice person, there's such a lot to learn. Uh, but also, I think what has been great, you know, I love um, uh, Nigel's book and like what Robert Toombs and different people have done and um, uh, and just pushing back and um, some of the kind of weaker constructs of uh, the decolonizing case have crumbled. And um, I know not, you know, not everybody's on board with this, but intellectually you can see what stands and what doesn't. And um, I think that the, the pushback has been, has been a great thing because it means that, um, um, you know, what was just a tide in one direction now has got a, a counter tide. And I think in the midst of that, we'll learn more. And let, let, let me, I think I share your optimism um, because although if you, if you live on Twitter, uh, you might imagine the whole world mad. is committed to this, 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 this vicious, uh, um, illiberal, unhearing combat. But, but actually, um, my my sense has been, and I will say the sales of my book rather confirms it. Out there in the great <laughs> British public, a lot of people w- want to be informed and and are willing to to reflect on these things and be presented with the whole range of evidence. So I. Long term, I'm, I'm optimistic too. Good. I'll, let's leave it there for now. We'll see how history judges us. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum. Do let us know what you thought, as well as ideas for future episodes on Twitter at Behind the Scenes. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts.